Hey listeners, before we begin the episode today, just a quick shout out to those of you who are in active recovery. You know you want to date, but you're overwhelmed or frustrated with the process um, of dating and recovery. We have an opportunity just for you. Uh, check out our new website, One Layer Deeper, O-N-E, LayerDeeper.com, uh, where we have information about our weekend dating and recovery intensives. Uh, these are awesome. They're a lot of fun. They help you dive deep into the issues that uh, keep you from dating successfully, having the relationships that you want, um, and also helping you find the kind of people that uh, you won't avoid their phone calls after a first date. So uh, we have two events upcoming. We're going to have a weekend for women. That'll be October 11th through 14th. And a weekend for men. That'll be November 1st through 4th. Uh, So if I'm talking to you, active recovery, and uh, you're frustrated with the whole dating process and would like to experience a deep change there, One Layer Deeper is for you. So check us out at OneLayerDeeper.com. Hope you enjoy the episode. sharing podcast the podcast where we explore all things recovery healing and relationship remember to subscribe and download episodes in the itunes store the google play store or on the podbean app you can find more thanks for sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on facebook at facebook.com slash healing paths that's path with an s Hi, everybody, and welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm John T. And I'm Jackie P. Uh, We're really excited today. We have two guests uh, this morning. Um, We have Kate Ballesteri and Lauren Dummett from Triune Therapy in L.A. Hi, Kate and Lauren. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thanks so much for having us on your show. Yeah, thank you. We're excited. In in addition to their their work at Triune, which is an outpatient clinic for sexual addiction, relationship, and trauma issues. Um, They also host a radio show, which I believe the name is Behind Closed Doors. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. We are on Talk Radio 790 KABC, and people can also subscribe to our show Behind Closed Doors with Dr. Kate and Lauren on our website or through Apple Podcasts. We save all of our our episodes. Awesome. Great. 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 Um, So we were going to talk today, I'm sure you've heard Jackie and I mention trauma, addiction, and relationships, because that is the, that's the core of what we focus on at Healing Pass. Um, And I'm noticing more and more in the sex addiction treatment community, those three issues pop up together. So we're going to talk about how those come together and why we focus on that. So Kate and Lauren, could you guys talk for a minute about how you kind of settled on this sex addiction relationships and trauma approach to helping your clients get better? Sure. Um, So a little bit of background, I guess my historical work has always been working with trauma and sexual issues in the prison systems and in private practice. And when Laura and I met, we actually met when we were doing our training to become certified sex addiction therapists. Mm -hmm. And we very quickly recognized how much synergy we have for the way we viewed people's uh, relationship to their sexuality as it relates to difficulties they're having either through sexual dysfunction, a compulsive issue, um, or any myriad of sexual issues. And we started recognizing that 
we both believed very fervently that trauma was the underlying um, cause of people's discomfort in their relationship to sexuality or in their romantic relationships in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is something I, I love talking to to other people who focus on that trauma and addiction intersection. I love hearing what the definition of trauma is for you. Um, because I, I think as we look at trauma through a lot of different lenses, we get a much fuller picture of what it means. So when you, when you guys talk about trauma being an underlying cause for compulsive behavior, how, how would you define trauma here? Well, hi, this is Lauren Demet. I'm a <laughs> licensed marriage and family therapist and sex addiction therapist. You know, the way I often describe trauma when I'm speaking with clients is in terms of like the big T and little t trauma, Uh big T trauma being these, you know, more obvious events that happen, such as, you know, having been raped or held at gunpoint or something like that. While little t trauma being um, the dynamics within relationships that have been traumatic. And when it happened in our family of origin or in our you know, formative years, it really affects our core sense of self, how we are in relationship with other people and how we're in relationship and our perspective of the world. And so when we were in an environment in which our needs were not met, you know, in any sense that was less than nurturing and our needs were not met, we often um, turn inwards in order to self-regulate and to get those emotional needs met. And depending on the type of trauma within the relationship, it can affect people in various ways, sometimes ways they didn't even consider to be trauma. But mm-hmm. it creates a dynamic of like looking outside oneself, you know, in, to find things to self-soothe. Yeah. And, and we often will add to that and say, <clears throat> and depending on what age this trauma happens, um, what you have access to externally may be very limited. Right. right? But we always have access to our body and typically right. we usually mm-hmm. have access to some type of food right 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 um anything you'd add kate to that definition of trauma well i think that i would just add i think how lauren defined it is very similar to how i would define it but i also talk with patients about how trauma can be very subtle and very insidious and really looks like anything that was less than optimal nurturing for us growing up and i think that's a really important distinction to make for patients because oftentimes they don't have a definitive um, point of trauma or event that they look back on their childhood and say, oh, this thing happened to me and that's why I'm impacted the way I am. Mm -hmm. So instead, we start breaking down what are some of the daily ways in which your needs were not met, your emotional needs, your physical needs, your creativity needs, all of those different kinds of things, um, protection needs. And we start exploring that. And when we start to dismantle the idea of how people define trauma, then they really can start to recognize a different paradigm for how they came to be engaging in whatever addictive process they're engaged in. Because as you mentioned, we do always have our bodies available to us. And most children have some kind of relationship to food, whether scarcity or availability or abundance. And so those are readily available coping strategies for people to develop. Right. And sometimes they're very effective and sometimes they can become maladaptive if they're used in a way that no longer satisfies the coping needs. Right. Yeah. And as you said, it's quite insidious and people often don't recognize that. You know, I often have people come in and say, well, I've not really had any big trauma happen. And, you know, sometimes I actually think it's the little t trauma, which is much more Mm -hmm. difficult to heal from because it really affects our core sense of self 
and our experience in the world where big T trauma, while I'm not minimizing <laughs> the, the impact, it can be seen as something that happened to us versus mm -hmm. who we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times with big T trauma, I mean, maybe not at the time it happened, but oftentimes at the time it happened, there's a sense within us of knowing this isn't normal right? Or this right. shouldn't be right. happening. And with little T trauma, it just blends into the fabric of our life, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, and really when, affects our self-esteem. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's where when you talk about the daily ways that our needs were not met, um, when I start introducing that idea to clients, I see it, um, I think initially really overwhelming. Like trauma is a big, scary okay. word. And when we mm -hmm. put it, when we put it in terms of there were daily things that contributed to this, there can be this like, oh my gosh, how am I going to climb this mountain response? Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I think it can be incredibly validating um, for those feelings that like something was always off, uh -huh. um, something mm -hmm. never quite connected. And I think it really, I think it really starts to challenge this narrative that we can have culturally that um, we're supposed to be pretty rough and tumble and be able to handle a lot. And I think with that mentality, we tend to err on the side of I can handle everything and mm -hmm. nothing's too big mm -hmm. and not appreciate how I think steadily our, our sense of self and our sense of safety can be worn away with these daily less than what we needed experiences. Right. Yeah. Well, you bring up a really interesting point too, because I think that a lot of people do have that mentality of I should be able to endure and there's really no challenge too big and they minimize their, the, the impact okay. of certain things on their lives. But it's curious because when we have that mentality, it's a fine line between being resilient and then self-negligent. Right. 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 And you think that a lot of people who grow up with uh, very subtle kinds of little T trauma, such as being invalidated emotionally on a regular basis or having a parent tell you, oh, that's not how you feel or we don't talk like that in this house. We don't express those kinds of feelings in this house, either explicitly or implicitly. People learn to shut down those parts of their experience. And again, the question is, at what point does it change from being resilient and, uh, to being counterproductive in someone's life? Mm -hmm. So I kind of look for that pressure point with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that conceptualization. Um, because I think there is a fine line between mental health and madness. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and this brings in the relational piece too, where um, so often, right? I mean, I when my kids were young and growing up, I would tell them like, we can do hard things, but we also do those things mm -hmm. together, right? And mm -hmm. so some yeah. of the um, trauma often can be that feeling alone or feeling isolated, feeling like nobody mm -hmm. really has your back is also traumatizing. Right. Yeah. Another form of trauma, which, you know, definitely um, would be disempowering in so many ways that people often don't recognize is the enmeshment trauma. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. people will say like, oh, well, my mom was my best friend, mm -hmm. but they don't mm -hmm. see all the ways that they were disempowered and really have like developed this like learned helplessness mm -hmm. and often have like some issues of rage that are like, you know, searing underneath because they didn't have any control. And then they feel like bad people or yeah. that something's wrong with them because mm -hmm. they have these underlying anger issues that they don't know where, where they come from. 
Yeah. Right. And that enmeshment piece can be so tricky um, mm-hmm. because oftentimes it, it felt normal or it felt, you know, it was kind of portrayed as we're this really close family. We glorified it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just a difficult one as you start to approach the enmeshment there's so many subtle ways that it shows up. I mean, some, some very overt ways too, but some very subtle ways um, that it showed up. And it's difficult for clients to see because this is going to challenge maybe what held them together during the trauma, mm-hmm. right? Which was to think, okay, I'm yeah. not alone. And they didn't realize the enmeshment piece was also traumatizing. Right. So, so definitely see well, a think- lot of, that power and control struggle come up in the function of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that was, you know, the only thing they felt they had control over. Right. Yeah. Kate, you, you had a comment. I was just going to say that I think um, what I see challenging about enmeshment is that it's simultaneously very empowering and disempowering for a child. And so, Oftentimes, the people that I'm working with who are recovering from enmeshment are very confused about how to maintain a relationship and where their self-esteem derives from, if not that relationship, and if not by being the good boy or good girl that mom or dad needed them to be growing up. And what's another added layer of complexity are our cultural expectations about completely honoring mothers and fathers and mm-hmm holding those roles in high esteem. And so I think people feel very bound by their loyalty to family, very bound by their loyalty to religion and cultural expectations about how they need to see themselves in relationship to their families and see their parents' um, intentions or behaviors, and that can thwart their willingness to those relationships a little bit more and the impact on them because there's a lot of fear and shame around, am I going to be the person who rocks the boat too much? And will I be ostracized from my family or my community? Right. There's so many like learned like messages within the family that we learn that are sometimes, you know, so covert and that often interferes with one's ability to participate in therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. such as like, we don't talk about our problems outside the home or, you know, it's not polite to be angry or all types of different, you know, subtle messages that were received and really affect people's ability to reach out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting as the, as, as we're talking about kind of these rules around what we don't talk about, what we don't pay attention to and why we don't pay attention, why we don't talk about it. I think about the relationship work that I do with couples in recovery and how so much of that comes back to here's what happened for me in the moment and I'm I'm recognizing and taking ownership for the difficulty that created in our relationship let me also tell you the backstory here like mm-hmm. here's the here's the template that I came from here's the family that I came from here are the beliefs that I internalize and a lot of that getting healthy in relationship requires us to break those rules around don't see don't feel don't talk mm-hmm and and I see this often in addiction, right, where they take that um, enmeshment, whether they've identified it as such or not, and as they start getting into and forming other relationships, right, they, they don't know how to individuate 
um, without maybe doing this big fuck you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I was going right. to say F right. you, there it goes. We got to put the explicit. <laughs> 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 um, and, and so, but sometimes in their family, they, they can't do that, right? So they're doing it everywhere else. Um, and in the family, they're still kind of beholden to this role that they were given and that they played in order to still belong, right? Mm -hmm. And as we talk exactly. about that, yes, as human beings, we do have a need to belong and to be accepted, um, but we also have this need to, you know, belong to the self, to be an individual, and enmeshed families don't, don't really allow that. They really don't. And the messages are so implicitly and covertly communicated. And it's really terrifying for people to start to make the decisions between, do I choose myself or do I stay connected to what I know as love, even though it doesn't feel good all the time. Uh -huh. And that can be really scary. It's really yeah. scary. Or, or that other piece, sometimes I'll work with them, you know, once they've kind of figured out how to be themselves, how do I take that now back into a group, right? Where I right. want to belong. Mm -hmm but I need to still hold myself and not lose myself in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so talk a little bit about how you help people start approaching that relational dimension of recovery. How, how do people get started in that? Well, personally, I think the, the, oh, go ahead, Lauren. <laughs> no, 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 go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think the primary relationship that we start working on is the relationship that the person has with themselves because often that's been the most neglected or indulged. And so I work with them on starting to recognize where those polarities exist and starting to, to create a more moderate and balanced um, and uh, interoceptive, meaning internally focused relationship. And so we really learn about staying in the present, using your body for cues to discern what you need, what you want, what you like, what you don't like, and beginning to articulate that first and foremost with yourself. Because most people who grew up with very enmeshed relationships have taken on in a chameleon-like way the likes and dislikes of the people around them in order to survive relationally. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first relationship that I focus on with patients is the relationship they have with themselves and learning how to understand their own needs. And then we start working on expressing them sciatically or interpersonally. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think the work begins... Um, with focusing on the individual and their relationship with the self. I was going to say that also personally, I, you know, I've been trained by Pia Melody and she does a lot of that family of origin trauma mm -hmm. work. And so a lot of times after we've done a lot of work around developing that relationship with self, we'll start going back into the family and really exploring what it felt like to be them in their family of mm -hmm. origin, mm -hmm. not just the dynamics, but, a very thorough exploration of what it actually felt like to be them as a child in their family of origin. And then kind of linking um, those, those feelings that they had both somatically, emotionally, you know, in terms of their experience with their thoughts and feelings into their current views of themselves, but also how that, you know, titrates out into their relationships with others in their current life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really looking at patterns that are repeated because they usually always are. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, yes. I, I think that is such an important therapeutic correction um, where Kate, you said that the relationship with the self is either most neglected or indulged. 
we can really look back to messages in childhood we got and where that decision point came for us to mm -hmm. either ignore ourselves or for the self to be the only, the only player for us. Um, mm -hmm. and, and neglecting those other relationships. I think it's such an important correction to go back to that. What is it like to be you? How are you feeling? And to show that level of appropriate attunement that I can see this and I can appreciate this um, as someone in a relationship with you. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not trying to control that. Um, I'm helping you to see it, which I think is what good enough parenting does is mm -hmm. I'm helping you to mm -hmm. see yourself. Mm -hmm. and, right. And ultimately to learn to reparent yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Most of the time when people come to us, it's too late to do the, <laughs> the important right. family work. Not always, mm -hmm. but so really about teaching them how to really show up for themselves in the way that their family wouldn't be able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, also, Lauren, I want to piggyback on what you said, because it's true that sometimes it's not logistically feasible for people to do that family work when they come to us. But oftentimes people are afraid to tap into that because they think we're going to force them to call their parents and have that right. hard conversation. Yeah, and right. that's a big barrier. And I want to highlight for anyone listening that often this work can be done without involving your actual parents or family in reality. Mm -hmm. It can be done with the, in, within the proxy of the therapeutic context and be just as healing, if not more healing, because oftentimes yeah. when if a family system isn't ready for change, it will be further resistant and people can risk being further traumatized if they bring this work right. to them. And right. so it's really important, I think, to note that this work is not done in a vacuum, but it doesn't necessarily need to include directly the people with whom you're trying to individuate from. Right. And it also allows them the opportunity to express things that might really not feel safe to express to them directly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. another thing is in terms of looking at like the loyalties that lie within families and the feelings that come up for people as they begin to approach this work. You know, one thing I always say is like this, the goal is not to you know, demonize your parents or vilify them, mm -hmm. but to accept them as human beings that are flawed. And mm -hmm. these patterns are often intergenerational. And the bottom line is they did the best they could with what they had. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to blame them, but to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. And one like, thing, and just for what they did and how it affected you, just getting your story straight. And, you know, one thing I will say to parents is that, you know, every single parent is a human being, which means they make mistakes. So our parents' mistakes become our wounds and our wounds become our journey. Mm -hmm. And if we, you know, choose to accept, because when we are going into addiction, we're not really working on the journey. But if we choose to accept, then that journey can provide our life's meaning. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, and unfortunately, oftentimes our parents also had parents, right? Right. <laughs> Who were also <laughs> imperfect and doing the mm -hmm. best that they yeah. could, right? So this is a familial cycle that just plays out generationally. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to kind yeah. of put that in perspective, right, that says, I mean, there were things that happened to your parents also that that influenced and colored the way that they parented for good or bad. And mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you said, those become the wounds that we have to journey to heal. And oftentimes I'll tell clients and to earn back our secure attachment. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But, but recognizing that 
we had like that it impacted us right maybe our parents intent was pure and maybe they wanted to do a good job of parenting and sometimes they can't hear that they didn't mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but we still need to acknowledge the impact that they're falling short or that they're overstepping had on us in order for us to become healed and whole yeah and i i think this arc of connecting trauma with addiction um has been transformative for this field and now this emerging um trauma and addiction and relationship work um i think is a really important next step um because without addressing these wounds that occurred in our relationships and the lack of skill and the lack of confidence and the lack of sense of self that can come from those wounds. Um, I don't think we really start completing the loop that fed addiction in the first place. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you two could speak a little bit to some of those transformative moments or those transformative times where the relationship piece really came back to help with the trauma piece that really came back to um, move us to a new place with the addiction piece? Well, one of the things that I see as being the most transformative is when people learn to start feeling comfortable in their own skin. And when they can start to tolerate some of the distressing feelings that were precipitating factors for their addiction, they learn how to be okay. And when people can feel okay in their own skin, that engenders a sense of relational empowerment that they've never felt before. And that can create a lot of momentum in building trust and learning to be vulnerable. And what we understand about addiction is that it's a disease of, it's a disease of the brain. It's a disease of memory. It's also an intimacy disorder at its core, regardless of what the, the addiction is too. So, the cure is community and relationships. And often that's the scariest thing for people who are in the throes of addiction to cultivate. So if they start to feel more comfortable in their own skin and reach out and they see the positive impact of people accepting them for who they are, that is completely beautiful. And they really start to blossom. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with, you know, what Kate just said and just add that also another huge piece, which, um, definitely gets so skewed in in dysfunctional family of origin settings is you know learning appropriate boundaries because boundaries are something that can really keep them safe in relationships and that they have a right to set boundaries Um, but also learning the containment boundaries on how to contain their thoughts their feelings and emotions Mm-hmm. So that, you know, not only can they protect themselves, but they're also like protecting others in a sense mm-hmm. by not, and by being able to contain their behavior. Yeah. I've, I've seen this happen with many clients, right? Where as we're doing the individual work and they're starting to fill a voice and they're starting to feel comfortable in themselves, right? They'll do what I call, I'm like, okay, now just because you found your voice doesn't mean we go around yelling at everybody, right? And, <laughs> right. and, and using it at the maximum capacity that we can. We've got to now find the balance. And, and so, yes, you get to be you with all that that encompasses, but that's not necessarily being relational, mm-hmm. right? right? So there's that other piece right. of learning how to be you within a relationship that isn't all about you. 
Right. And, yeah. you know, depending on the addiction, you know, um, often they feel very out of control or mm -hmm. they have too much control. So learning like the appropriate, you know, boundaries and containment can really help them feel a lot safer, even from themselves. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I love how that concept of relationship um, for you comes back to that. It starts with the comfort with the self and it starts with the mm -hmm. relationship with the self, which is so cliche in our field. But I think there's a, I think there's a reason why it's cliche because it's right. one of those truths yeah. that you can't slice any other way. Right. So I'm wondering yeah, if, I agree. <laughs> if you guys could maybe speak for a minute to, um, I had a session earlier this week with a fairly new client um, and we were talking about the sexual addiction and as far as he's aware, there's no sexual trauma. So he was just kind of like, but why, why did I end up a sex addict and not an alcoholic? Right. Or why did I end up here and not there? And, and we were just kind of talking about, um, I said something to the effect of like, you know, our sexuality is such a core part of who we are. And he was just like, tell me about, like, I don't understand that. Right. And I, I mean, I did tell him, I said, I don't know that I can do that in one session. Right. <laughs> this is something mm -hmm. we're going to be unpacking and unfolding throughout your journey. Um, but I thought that would be an interesting thing for us to talk about and just kind of talk about that sexual part of us um, and, and why it is a core part of who we are. Any what? thoughts? Well, I think, first of all, you know, when you were talking earlier about like the fact that when we're young, depending on our age, we have very, very limited access to outside resources. And one of them is our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, turning towards our bodies as a distraction from pain and that's a way to self-regulate and soothe is one of the first things that we have access to. Also, I think in terms of um, our sexuality, I do think it is a core sense of self. And so even children have sexuality. And so I think there's a big correlation between shame and sexuality and sex addiction. And I don't think it always necessarily is sexual abuse, mm -hmm. but you know, somehow they're often, depending on their life experiences, you know, their shame was introduced and it got wrapped up in their sexuality. Yeah. Anything you wanted to advocate? I, I would echo that. I think the tapestry of our sexual arousal templates and our behavior is really vast. And we have lots of different things that are influencing how we are, how we relate to our sexuality. So we often have some kind of genetic imprint that influences our sexuality and our sexual behavior. And then we pepper into that all of the overt and covert messages that we received growing up through our family, through any religious community, um, through our cultural community, through our local uh, community, and then the greater culture of wherever we grew up. And all of that shapes how we see sexuality and how we behave and interact sexually with other people. And so it's, it's hard to point definitively to one thing and say, this one thing right here mm -hmm. is what shaped mm -hmm. my sex addiction mm -hmm. because right. it's so many different variables that are layered into that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important to note that it's an epigenetic process, right? Mm -hmm. That we have some kind of biology and genetic disposition 
to why we become addicted to certain things versus others. And then that is fleshed out based on what we're exposed to in uh, our formative years. Yeah. Yeah. I I also would add our our sexuality, I think, is one of the purest forms of us. Yeah. Um, When you look at how that links in the brain, there's a survival linkage, there's an emotional linkage, there's a community Mm -hmm. linkage. Mm-hmm. There's, There's a primal, primal link. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, every aspect of us has a quote-unquote shadow side, and then we've got the side that is easier for us to accept. And I think our sexuality is one of the most direct paths to our history, to our emotions, mm-hmm. to our connections. Um, mm-hmm. And it's even interesting in, in the work that I've done with um, some clients who are primarily substance users, um, versus behavioral addiction, there's still a very critical sexual component to address Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in their work. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think we get through life without our sexuality being impacted by our experiences and our sexuality reflecting our experiences. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, while sexuality can uh, be an expression of maybe what's gone wrong or unhealthy messages we've internalized or, or even just kept at a very superficial level, right? There's this other part of it that is such a deep expression of the self and allowing Mm -hmm. another person to come in and connect with Mm -hmm. us at such a core level. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Just even in terms of the arousal template, I mean, there's so many messages around sexuality in the media and advertising on TV Mm. that are all around us, both subliminal and overt. And I also think that the subtle ways that people use their sexuality in order to manipulate and persuade there's very subtle messages that people learn very early on. Mm-hmm. I remember even learn, watching Gilligan's Island and that, uh, is it Mary Ann or Ginger? I remember watching her and being really affected by the way that she used her sexuality mm-hmm. to influence people. And that wasn't an, you know, a show that wasn't appropriate for young children. Right. right. You know? So, you know, we're impacted so early by things that most people might not even yeah. recognize. Well, and as you were saying, with that show particularly, right, it puts up two females. I mean, you've got Mrs. Howto, who's just kind of old and non-sexual, right? Right. Um, (laughs) The girl next door. Yeah. But then you've got Marianne and Ginger, who very much are like, you know, Marianne doesn't come across as somebody who's very sexual, but she's this very sweet, very nice, likable girl, right? Mm -hmm. And then you've got Ginger, who is a woman, right? And encompasses her sexuality. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You know, just to watch those shows and, and that we're ingesting messages that we're not fully aware of. And and Mm -hmm. I I love that this conversation took a Gilligan's Island. (laughs) Um, Because I, I think that highlights this whole, like, I'm, I'm sure that the writers, I, I can say this with a degree of confidence, I think. I'm sure the writers did not intend to explore that. Right. Um, right. And it's, it's the same thing with our lives. Like, like it or not, it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. Like, like it or mm-hmm. not, it is, it is a part of you. And it's part of how it, it's going to drive how you interact with yourself, how you interact in your relationships. And knowing that part of us um, and being able to make peace with that part of us and even being able to hone that part of us to enrich our lives mm-hmm. um, 
I think is, is what gets us health is what gets us well-being. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And Lauren, we're really uh, grateful to you for the time that you've spent with us today. Oh, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us on your show. This has been wonderful. Yeah. It's been really fun. How, how do our listeners find you? If you could just say that again. Absolutely. They can check out our website at triunetherapy.com. That's T-R-I-U-N-E.com. Excuse me, triunetherapy.com. And they can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under the same handle, Triune Therapy Group. And we'd be happy to consult with anyone who would like to learn more about some of the services that we offer or about what we've been talking about today. Right. And between trauma and addiction and relationships. And I might just add that we all host a radio show that's on um, 790 KBC in Los Angeles, um, in which we talk about these type of issues. And if you're not able to catch it when it airs at 6 p.m. on Saturdays, you could also find that in podcast form on our website. Great. Awesome. And we'll, we'll put those Absolutely. links up in the show notes. Thank you for your time. Thank Great. you. Thank you. At the end of this episode, we want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there is something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. And remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.